Welcome to Never Again Is Now, a podcast about anti-Semitism. I'm Evelyn Marcus. And I am Phyllis Simbler-Miller. Today's episode is in honor of International Holocaust Remembrance Day, which is commemorated every year on January 27th, the date on which Auschwitz was liberated in 1945 by the Russians. Our guest is Mordechai Paldiel, the former director of the Department of the Righteous Among the Nations, or non-Jews who saved Jews, at the Holocaust Museum Yad Vashem in Jerusalem. And he has his own personal Holocaust survivor story due to the righteous actions of non-Jews. Mordechai, welcome to have you on our show. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much. And let's start by having you tell us about that early childhood story and who saved you and your family. Well, uh, I was born in Belgium, in Antwerp, Belgium, uh, in 1937. When the Germans invaded on May 10, 1940, uh, we fled to France uh, in the expectation that the French would be able to hold back the Germans as they did in World War I. Well, it didn't happen that way, and France collapsed, and we stayed in France, and uh, basically uh, we lived a certain part uh, in Marseille, uh, which is a large city on the coast, on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, which was in Vichy, France. So Vichy, France was a French government, which uh, the Germans allowed to uh, function out of the city of Vichy, uh, and uh, they instituted anti-Semitic laws, but they weren't uh, as uh, as bad as the Germans up north in Paris. So we stayed in Marseille until it became very dangerous because in November 1942, the Germans occupied also the Vichy zone, and they began rounding up Jews with the help of the French uh, police. So we fled to the Italian zone, which was next to Marseille. They had a the Italians who were allies to Nazi Germany, and they also had their own brand of anti-Semitism, but they didn't go so far as to uh, create concentration camps inside Italy, uh, uh, and certainly not to deport Jews uh, to concentration camps in Poland, uh, at least at that time, in 19, late 1942. So we stayed in, in the Italian zone, in a little village called uh, Vars, right outside Grenoble, which is a, the main city there, uh, until Italy itself surrendered to the Allies on September 8, 1943. So the Germans came in and took over the Italian zone, so we had to flee again. And at that time, my mother learned that there was a French uh, priest who was helping people uh, who for some reason or other had to flee from the Germans to help them cross into Switzerland. Uh, he lived in a city called Evian-les-Bains, which was uh, not far from the Swiss border. And so my mother went to see him and he uh, agreed to help us. We were then uh, six children. I'm the second of the six children and my father, my mother, and also my grandmother. And he arranged for us to cross into Switzerland on September 8, 1943. Uh, the Swiss allowed us to stay uh, in separate places. My, my mother with the smaller children 
in one place, my father in a man's camp, and me and my elder sister in a uh, in a children's home, uh, which was managed by the Jewish Federation in Switzerland. The man, the priest, his name was Simon Gallet. Uh, this I discovered afterwards when I came to work at Yad Vashem. And uh, I luckily uh, rediscovered him based on the information that my father and mother gave. I was then six years old. I don't remember very much. And we were able to locate him and we were able to honor him as a righteous among the nations. And I had the privilege of even planting a tree for him in the Garden of the Righteous at Yad Vashem, which is still there. Uh, and so he was added to the list of the righteous. Uh, so I came to Yad Vashem uh, in 1982. Uh, I had finished uh, studying at Temple University. My undergraduate work uh, was at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. I made Aliyah in 1962 after I was discharged from the U.S. Army. There was a draft then. And uh, I studied at the Hebrew University political science and economics. And, and then I met somebody. We married and we had children. And then I decided to take up uh, after the Six-Day War in 1967, in which I was a soldier, I decided to continue my studies. And I came to this country, to the United States, and uh, I uh, registered in at Temple University in Philadelphia. I did my master's there and my PhD under the guidance of Professor Franklin Littell. You may have heard of him. He was very much involved in Holocaust education. Now, why would I, with a background in economics and political science, suddenly be interested in Holocaust? Well, it was always in the back of my mind uh, because uh, my father and mother, they always sort of mentioned it very briefly, just clips about what we underwent in France and in Switzerland during World War II. And uh, my father always uh, made a comment, uh, without the help of a Catholic priest, we wouldn't be alive. Uh, we would be stuck uh, in, in France and probably be picked up by the Germans. And when I asked for more information at the time, uh, uh, my father and mother used to back off and say, well, it's not important. Uh, uh, let's, let's get on with our lives here and let's not talk about this horrible past. But then when I finished my studies at Temple University, I came back to Israel and uh, I heard that at Yad Vashem there was an opening for a position called Head of the Department for the Righteous Among the Nations. And so I said to myself, what is that supposed to mean? I never heard of this term before. I, I, I was already pretty fluent in Holocaust studies, uh, but righteous among the nations. So I decided I'm going to check it out. So I went to Yad Vashem and I applied. I was told, well, there's uh, 25 other applicants for this job. I said, well, okay, never mind. I'll fill out the form. And then I was called for two interviews. And then I was told I got the job. And so I found out about a whole new spectrum of work at Yad Vashem, of which I had no inkling before. 
about Gentiles who save Jews. And that was like an opening, a new opening, like a rebirth for me. Because I never knew that there was such a thing. Uh, that there, Well, I knew about uh, that Catholic priest. So there's always an exception to the rule. But uh, at Yad Vashem, I learned that there were many, many more such exceptions. Unfortunately, not too many, but still quite more than simply a handful. Uh, right. And so I, I started working. I just want to finish. And then I said, I have an obligation. If my father and mother once told me that there was a Catholic priest that saved us, I said, I got to find this person. Maybe he's still alive. And at least say thank you for saving us, for helping us to cross into Switzerland. Uh, and uh, this is a long story how I found him. Uh, but I found him, he was uh, in a Catholic home. He had retired. Uh, he was in another city in Ancy, which is not far from Evian. And uh, I corresponded with him. And I got my mother's and father's testimony. And we honored him with Yad Vashem as the righteous among the nations. How, how was it for you to to meet him and say thank you in person? Well, uh, it, it was very moving for me. Uh, I learned that he had helped other persons too. Uh, I'm, we're, I, we were not the only Jewish persons. He had helped Jewish and other persons who had a reason to flee from the Germans uh, for whatever, either racial reasons or political reasons. I was glad I found him still alive. Uh, and he died a few years afterwards. And uh, he was a very lovable, friendly person. And he was he was also glad that he had found me. Uh, and uh, he had found my my mother and father were in Brooklyn. And uh, I was in Israel, at Yad Vashem in Israel, and he was in France. Uh, but but I, I caught a plane and I, I went to see him personally. Of course, I have photos of me and him. Yeah. And uh, I gave him the in a ceremony, uh, which was hosted by the Israeli ambassador in France. Uh, we gave him the uh, medal and the certificate, certificate of honor that Yad Vashem uh, hands out to anyone that it declares to be a righteous among the nations. So it was very moving. Yes. It was yeah. a chapter for me. Yes. May I, I ask a question about this? Did you Did you speak with him about why he did it? I mean, he he was risking his own life. Let's let's make it clear here. So, did you ask him why he felt compelled to do this? Uh, no, I did not ask him. Uh, but in one of his letters to me, he said, uh, "I'm not the only one who helped. Uh, I had some colleagues. They helped, and they were caught, and they were sent to concentration camps, and some did not return." And he said, "I was lucky. Uh, I was not caught." Uh, or I was not identified. Uh, I never asked him, not at the ceremony. I uh, uh, This is a topic that uh, we discussed that among historians, among psychiatrists, among uh, sociologists. Uh, I didn't ask him. Uh, and uh, I'm not sorry that I didn't ask him uh, because I... Uh, as I worked at Yad Vashem, and I received the stories of uh, hundreds and hundreds of others who helped Jews, uh, whether it was in Poland and in, in, in Italy and France and Belgium, Holland, they themselves uh, sometimes stated why they did it. 
And uh, all of them gave different types of answers. Some of them gave religious answers, like it was a Christian duty. Uh, some of them felt, they said uh, that uh, they felt that every person has a right to live, whether you like that person or not. And uh, no one can take the, uh, can arbitrarily decide who has a right to exist and who has a right not to exist. And therefore, uh, I decided if I could help out. Uh, I also found out something uh, which did not appear in the literature, that uh, most of the people who helped Jews, uh, it's, they didn't take the initiative. They didn't go out and look for Jews to help. But it's the Jews who came to them and asked for help. In most cases, of course, there are exceptional cases. Uh, but in most cases, it's the Jew who asked someone, like in my case, we asked the, that priest or someone that they knew from before, and they said, can you help me? And uh, and that person uh, answered in the positive, but I have to I have to warn that there, there were also cases where the help was, uh, was declined, was rejected uh, for a host of reasons. One of them was fear, uh, and um, the other one was, well, people didn't like Jews very much, and they didn't feel, and the the, the main reason was risk. Uh, people who declined to help Jews was because they knew if, 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 if this had been discovered, uh, they would face severe risks from the Germans, and that risk could go as far as losing one's life. Uh, this was especially so in Eastern Europe. Uh, or you'd be sent to a prison or concentration camp. Uh, so for someone that has a family uh, and uh, facing the potential of uh, leaving his children as orphans and so on, so, uh, this is maybe one of the reasons why uh, so many others declined to help. Uh, because, you know, uh, human nature as such we are always ready to help and we like to help and we all and we consider ourselves as people who like to help others but not at the price of losing one's life yeah <laughs> that's a whole different ball game so if i uh see somebody on the street and i can help him and make a donation uh homeless or if some someone needs some other kind of help uh, so he has a roof over his head and I can do that, uh, I may do that, but I don't have to fear that uh, the next day I'll, I'll wind up in a concentration camp for that or be placed against. So the fear of retribution by the Germans and, you know, one knew that you, you couldn't play footsie with the Germans. They were very severe and harsh. You could see that uh, people would suddenly disappear and wind up in concentration camp yes. for other reasons, for political reasons or for anyone who opposed the Germans. And everybody knew that the Germans had targeted the Jews for special measures. Uh, and Jews were disappearing. Uh, they were boarding on trains and nobody ever thought. Uh, that is why so many people uh, preferred not to get involved and not to, uh, not to help out. But the way some people simply could not say no when a Jew approached them and asked for help like the case of my priest. Uh, they felt uh, these persons, they just want to live. 
It's not that they want to cross the border to get a better job or to improve the standard of living, like to today's refugees. They just want to remain alive. They want to live, uh, which is a God-given gift for every person. And so they felt that they should they couldn't say no, and they would figure out a way how to help. Yes. To, so to, it's to, a big thing, uh, and there have been studies on that, and there's no con con conclusive things. I know Nahama Tech has written about this, uh, Samuel Oliner. Uh, uh, they usually came to the conclusion that it has to do with a person's upbringing, education, how they were treated as children, and uh, what they were told by their parents how to view people that were different from them and uh, and not to treat them with any hostility. So there have been studies on that. Uh, so it's it's values they got from their upbringing? Is that what you're saying? That's what they are saying. Yeah. But, you know, if you are a sociologist of, uh, and a uh, psych, psychologist, uh, then, of course, uh, you explain uh, human behavior uh, by going back to the very early years of a person, uh, what kind of education, what kind of atmosphere at home, uh, whether they were abused by their parents, what sort of punishment they received for the parents when they trespassed, was it severe punishment, or was it a punishment where the children felt that it was justified, they did <laughs> something which they deserved punishment. And so they went into... Uh, uh, I I stayed away from that because I came across many rescuers uh, who didn't have such uh, good parents. Uh, their parents were not so tolerant. Uh, and uh, it's not uh, that they viewed others with, with great admiration. For instance, Nechama Tech uh, wrote a book uh, about Polish rescuers. And... Uh, she came to the conclusion, she said that most Polish people, they had a, an opinion about Jews, where Jews were viewed very badly, very negatively, uh, for various reasons. Uh, so uh, those Polish people that she met that saved Jews, why did they do it? So she came up with a different uh, explanation, that those people who helped Jews with, were, were different. Uh, they did not uh, mix with the rest of society. They were outsiders. They they formed their own opinion. Uh, they didn't simply uh, join uh, 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 with the opinion of, of the majority of people. Uh, they were different than the others. They were marginal. Uh, and, and so they formed their opinion uh, that uh, I think I should help Jews. Uh, whereas the rest of society in Poland had different opinions about the Jews, that whatever happens to Jews, they deserved it. They uh, they deserved that punishment, and Jews were this and that and so on. Uh, those who saved Jews, they were independent thinking people. Uh, how did they get to that? For various reasons. Part of it's education, part of it is that. Uh, I had some problems uh, uh, with this because independent thinking people can also become very strong anti-Semitic. Uh, uh, I don't want to go into the, the, the debate, but uh, uh, even uh, Adolf Hitler was very different than others and had his own mind and very different. And he turned out to be uh, uh, what we all know. So 
it's it's still a mystery. Goodness is a mystery to me, uh, and I think uh, uh, we all have, we all feel that uh, uh, that we are good people. Um, nobody feels themselves is a bad person, uh, and uh, we all uh, look out for the opportunity to try to help. Uh, so I say this because usually uh, human nature is viewed differently. Uh, uh, Sigmund Freud uh, wrote that people are basically aggressive, uh, self-seeking, pleasure people uh, who are only concerned about themselves. Uh, when they're concerned about others, if they if they can benefit about from this as well, that's the way human nature is, and that's why we have society. A society it was created by people in order to rein in uh, the basic aggressive. Uh, drive that we have uh, so society says this is permitted and this is not permitted whether you like it or not uh, that's his estimation There's a lot of uh, uh, philosophers who who join in this thinking but I I, I found out that many of these uh, uh, rescuers uh, they they were able to if they had any aggressive feeling they were able to control it and they, the, the goodness came out of them the altruism and, and they yep. took a tremendous risk uh, and for which they did not profit in any way. No. Uh, uh, they, when, when a Polish person took a Jew into his home and he hid him, it's not because uh, he knew that after the war he was going to be hailed and celebrated by society. On the contrary, society may think of him as a fool and an idiot, that he would risk his life for a Jew. Uh, and not because he felt that Yad Vashem was going to give him a medal. Uh, Yad Vashem did not exist yet. So uh, it's still, but these people did acts of goodness, risking their lives, saving Jews, uh, for reasons which they themselves found it hard to explain. They said, well, I, uh, it was natural, they say, for me uh, to do it. Uh, I couldn't have acted differently. I don't understand the question. Wow. Uh, and so I am still left with that with that mystery. Mystery, yes, yes. That's that's amazing and fascinating, also. Um, Phyllis. Yes. Before Evelyn uh, brings us up to uh, today and how this is relevant today, just could you very briefly, because I've had people ask me this question: How does someone get recognized? I know there's a whole process. We won't go through the whole process, but it's not just sending an email to Yad Vashem and saying, I think this person should be honored. There has to be testimony and proof. And is that correct? Yes. Well, I'm glad you asked that question. This is how it works. Uh, Yad Vashem was created by law in 1953. And uh, at the preface of the law says that Yad Vashem is created, is hereby established for the following purposes, uh, to commemorate the Holocaust, blah, 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 one, two, three, four, five, and then there's an item, uh, paragraph nine, uh, which uh, going back, uh, Yad Vashem is created for, paragraph nine, for the righteous among the nations who risk their life to save Jews, period. Uh, that was stated in 1953 laws. So later on, Yad Vashem decided to take on this paragraph and decide what to do with what the laws uh, uh, termed righteous among the nations. Chassideu Motaholam in Hebrew, uh, who saved Jews uh, by risking their own lives. So Yad Vashem created a committee, a commission, 
which was chaired by a justice from the Supreme Court, uh, to decide uh, who are those people who uh, help Jews and uh, we can declare them as righteous among the nations. So uh, the first, the basic criteria is, as it is written in the law, risk of their lives. In other words, those people who help Jews, they stood at uh, potentially at the risk of losing their lives. So uh, that uh, cancels out people who help Jews but uh, from the safety of other countries that was not occupied by the Germans or collaborators. So persons who help Jews from the safety of England or United States uh, do not come into account because they didn't risk their life. So the committee then decided what are the other criteria. So the first directly one is risk, and they added a few more requirements. Number two, a person saved a Jew, it don't make a difference whether that uh, attempt was successful or not. Like in the case of Anne Frank, the people who sheltered them, well, it was not successful. They were caught, so that doesn't cancel them out. Uh, then uh, number three is uh, there is uh, no stain on the record of that person that he may have helped some Jews, but he may have turned over other Jews uh, to the Germans. There were stories of persons who helped and also betrayed. Uh, an additional thing is that they did not precondition their help by a astronomical uh, inordinate amount of money. It's like, like saying, I will help you survive, but you, t you have to turn over all of your property to me right now. That's the condition. Or I will uh, take in your children, your, your child, and I will raise them and I will and I will uh, care for him, but I will never have to return it to you if you survive, the parents and mothers. Uh, and I will raise him in my religion and in, 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 in my tradition. This is the condition. Uh, these people uh, do not qualify, okay? Uh, so compensation, inordinate compensation. Uh, however, if a person says, well, I will shelter you and your wife and children, and I will hide you in my farm, but in order, you will have to help us a little bit with money because uh, the extra food that we will have to provide you, that's okay. That doesn't cancel it out. Uh, and, and foremost, the story has to be established not only by the rescuer who claims that he saved Jews, but it has to be verified by the people who were helped. So the survivors, they have to come out and say, yes, I was helped by this, by this person, and this is how it happened. Uh, they, and uh, they know that they are writing to Yad Vashem for the purpose of honoring their rescuers, okay? Uh, <laughs> because we also had some people who wrote to us and said, yes, uh, she helped me, uh, but uh, she abused me very strongly. Uh, I mean, she made me work, so, oh, yes, uh, he helped me, but uh, I have to tell you in confidence that he sexually abused me while I was hiding with him. There are such stories. So uh, these are the, uh, the, the uh, not the regular story. Most stories are help out of altruistic motivations. So when we receive uh, the testimony of that person uh, with a signature which is uh, verified, okay, 
uh, and we go over the story, and that's about it. So we also uh, recognize people uh, uh, post-mortem, they may not be alive. Uh, once we declare a person as a righteous, then we, uh, uh, the rescuers, of course, they live uh, in various parts of the world. So we inform, uh, that is we, Israel, Yad Vashem, uh, informs uh, the ambassador of that country where that people live and say, well, that person has been declared a righteous and we will be sending you a medal uh, where that person's name appears and a certificate of honor. And uh, then you will get in touch with that person or their relatives, the next of kin. And uh, we uh, would appreciate you would hold a, a dignified ceremony and present to them these honors and, uh, and publicize that in the press so people know that Israel is honoring people who risk their lives to save Jews. And in addition, uh, those persons have the privilege of having a tree in their name at Yad Vashem. Uh, the tree planting existed for some time, but then we ran out of space. So those persons appear in the Garden of the Righteous on special honor walls. So the names are etched on honor walls and it saved this forever. So, uh, and then uh, Yad Vashem uh, published an eight volume encyclopedia uh, where all these persons uh, are listed and a summary of what they did uh, to help Jews and the uh, for which they were accorded uh, the title of righteous among the nations. Thank you. Okay, Evelyn. Um, Mordechai, to, today you are very active in Holocaust education and remembrance. Um, what can remembering the righteous deeds of others teach young people today? It's very important. That topic is very important. It's getting more important as time passes because there are times like today where it seems the world is going in the wrong direction. Things are happening. We see what's happening in Ukraine, the war in Ukraine, uh, what's happening in the Middle East with Israel, what's happening in the United States where people uh, are being encouraged uh, uh, to be more egotistical, more to think about themselves and not worry about the plight of others. Uh, there are people all over the world that suffer uh, for whatever reasons, for religious reasons, for political reasons, for nationalistic reasons. And uh, there are people, innocent people, who as a result of that suffer. And the teaching, I mean, I mean, we Jews, we have a Bible, uh, and the, the Bible urges us that uh, to think about other people's suffering and, and try to do, to alleviate their suffering as much as we can and to help them out. So that doesn't mean that we have to risk our lives for that, like uh, the righteous Gentiles. But uh, that means we cannot be indifferent and be bystanders and be onlookers and say, oh, that's none of my business. Let somebody else figure it out. Uh, we have to try to get involved and uh, try to help out. Uh, so, you know, it's like uh, the story of Mother Teresa. She went to India. So she tried to help out in whatever ways that she could. So the teaching of the righteous Gentiles is, if these people 
were willing to risk their lives. And incidentally, some of them were caught and paid with their lives. So we have people who actually wound up, uh, they were either shot, killed, especially in Poland, where the Germans warned the Polish population in 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 on bulletin boards and uh, that the death penalty will be applied to anyone caught sheltering a Jew in their home. Uh, it don't make a difference if you did it for uh, profit or not. Uh, and if these people were still willing to help out uh, and risk their lives, well, uh, and these are people, they're not people who are heroes. Uh, they're not people who uh, uh, compete in the Olympics and uh, they outdo uh, everybody else in, in running faster or jumping higher and they get celebrated and they get medals. And they're not the soccer players and football players. And they're not people who like to think themselves as heroes. None of the righteous uh, said, uh, I have to Jews because I, I'm a heroic figure. I, I, I like to be considered a hero. No. Most of them say after the war, uh, don't make a fuss about it. I just did what I thought was the right thing. Uh, uh, Okay, I'll take the medal, but uh, that doesn't mean anything. That doesn't mean I'm different. Uh, I just did what I thought was the right thing. So if those people did the right thing, uh, as part of losing their life, well, the lesson should be that others uh, can do something, and not not having to risk their lives, and still to try to figure out uh, to help out. I have in mind like the organization, the doctors uh, for, uh, I forgot the full title. These are doctors that volunteer to go to Africa and try to help out uh, without any pay. So they do it for one year, but they do it. Uh, and they don't do it, uh, they don't risk their lives of being shot by someone. Uh, so I say uh, it, it's possible uh, to be whatever you are in life, you can be a hedge funder, you can be a broker, you can be an aggressive lawyer. That doesn't count out that you can do a good deed. Uh, there are ways of doing good deeds in, in your own backyard, in your own society, and uh, without necessarily having to fear uh, that you'll be put up against the wall and shot for that. And, and, and society is basically based on people helping out each other. That's what civilization is all about. Uh, that's what, uh, or else civilization would not exist. So uh, sometimes uh, you have to look out for the other. Uh, he may not be like you. He may belong to a different religion, to a, a, a different thinking, uh, but we all belong to the human race. We all uh, have something in common. So I think that's the lesson that we can learn from the righteous among the nations who come from different walks of life. Some of them were well-to-do, uh, some of them were not well-to-do, some of them were poor, and they didn't know of each other. They didn't belong to a club. Uh, and yet they all came to the same conclusion. Uh, if that person needs help uh, and I can help out uh, within the measure of my efforts, I will do that. And I will take uh, steps just to make sure that um, I'm not discovered, so uh, I will stay alive. Uh, I, I will look out uh, how to do it best, 
and most of them did succeed. And uh, and uh, and and uh, the Germans not finding out and local collaborators. They were all, always collaborators among your own people uh, who would try to inform on somebody sheltering a Jew because they would get some some kind of reward like uh, two bottles of whiskey or something like that. So you had to be a you, you, you had to take measures. You had to make sure uh, that when you're helping a Jew, as few people who know about it, uh, it is much better. Uh, the more people know about it, that's 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 very foolish, and uh, uh, and that could end in a disaster for yourself and for the persons that you are helping. And so there were people who were not uh, didn't necessarily have a a high IQ. But they, they found a way uh, to be decent human beings. And that's a lesson that we can propagate and we can we, we can teach others. Right. So, yeah, Evelyn, you yeah. have another question. So, um, uh, does the rise of anti-Semitism today uh, around the world seem similar to you, to what happened in Europe in the 1930s, and and what should we bring? What should we all be doing now to learn from the past and to resist this rise? So anti-Semitism, you know, there was a French uh, philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre, uh, who at the end of the war he wrote a book, Réflexion sur la question juive. Uh, which has been translated in English, anti-Semite and Jew, but the, the real the translation means reflections on the Jewish question. And he tries to figure out what makes a person into an anti-Semite. And basically, he comes to a conclusion, which I agree with him. These are people who are unhappy with themselves. They're basically unhappy with, with themselves. And there are so many in every society. There are always people who, for some reason or another, are unhappy with themselves and they have to let out steam and they have steam uh, and instead of correcting themselves they they seek out others as scapegoats to blame others uh, why i didn't succeed in this it's because of the other guy and so they seek out to blame people who there is already a common denominator you blame the jews you have an audience mm -hmm. uh, to blame the the people in Argentina for what happened to you, you don't have an audience. Nobody's going to listen to you. Don't make sense. But if you blame the Jews because it already has a history of anti-Semitism, so at least people will listen to you, and you're going to let out steam. Well, Jean-Paul Sartre was a socialist, and he said the solution to that is to establish a socialist society where there's not going to be big differences in wealth and so on, and people more people will be happy in that society and that's going to resolve anti-Semitism. I don't, I don't uh, think that he has found the solution to that because we found out that there was as much anti-Semitism and socialism in the Soviet Union and others than uh, elsewhere. But anyway, uh, anti-Semitism is a, is a mental disease. Uh, it crops up, especially at times when society is changing, when there are transformation, when there are uh, great change in society. Uh, it's people most. If you check the anti-Semites, the the most vulnerable anti-Semites, people who are unhappy with themselves that something has happened in their life. They're not happy with themselves. Let's put it that way. Uh, and so, 
uh, I'm a little bit pessimistic. We will always have anti-Semitism with us. It'll never completely disappear. There were times when it'll be dormant. Mm -hmm. It'll be dormant when society is happy with itself. Uh, like uh, after World War II, like in the 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s, you didn't hear that much about anti-Semitism. But now when there's the societies and, and upheavals, even here in the United States, things are changing. People are wondering what's happening to this country. Where are we heading? Uh, uh, recently, a man became president uh, who might again become president and he has opened the Pandora box. Uh, and a lot of people feel free to express themselves in whatever way. So my message, what I say is, anti-Semitism uh, is dangerous for the society itself that has it. Because if I would say to people who are anti-Semites, uh, be very careful, you're, you're not hurting so much, you're hurting Jews, but you're hurting your own country, your own society and yourself. Because history has shown that uh, wherever anti-Semitism has flourished, the country went down. So, uh, it hurt yeah. the country. And I can give examples from uh, uh, going back. The Roman Empire at the beginning, uh, it, it did not persecute Jews. It, 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 of course, it destroyed uh, the Jewish state because the Jewish people, they wanted independence and the Romans wanted to uh, the state of Judea to remain with the Roman Empire, but they didn't abolish the Jewish religion. They allowed the Jewish religion to continue. Uh, when uh, when the Roman Empire was beginning to go down, it became Christian, and then it began to persecute Jews. Well, that was the end of the Roman Empire. When when Spain expelled Jews, uh, that's the beginning when Spain began to uh, go down. Uh, if Jews had stayed in Spain, maybe Spain would still have uh, been uh, a world power as it was then. Uh, the same thing uh, happens in all societies, even Nazi Germany. Uh, well, Nazi Germany, uh, Hitler brought Nazi Germany down to catastrophe. It was uh, uh, total destruction. Uh, you know, uh, German Jews were great nationalists. They, they loved Germany. Uh, there was nothing similar to that. Uh, you don't find uh, Jews who come from Poland and they have good things to say about <laughs> Polish people. Uh, but you have Jews who come from Germany and they look up the German culture and they still think that that that, that Hitler does not represent a real Germany. I, I've come across people like that. Uh, uh, if Hitler had not been anti-Semitic and he would, have, he would have asked Jews to join him in order to make Germany great and, and better, I think it would have worked out better for Germany. Uh, so anti-Semitism hurts uh, the country. Uh, uh, the same thing in Poland. Uh, Poland was on was once a promised land for Jews. Uh, Jew, the Jewish history in Poland. I wrote a book about that. Uh, Poland, uh, the Jews, and the Holocaust. Uh, the the Polish kings invited Jews to come and settle in Poland. Uh, there were only two countries in Europe that invited Jews to come and settle. One of them was the Netherlands and invited Jews to come. And the other one was Poland. The other countries, the Jews just came and uh, then they were expelled. Uh, Poland invited the Jews because they wanted the Jews to, to help build up Poland, uh, the economy. And uh, Poland is one of the, the only country in Europe 
uh, that never expelled the, its Jews. England expelled its Jews, uh, France expelled, Germany expelled its Jews, uh, uh, and so on down the line, uh, except for Holland. Uh, uh, Poland never, to its history, uh, didn't, didn't create ghettos like in Italy. The, the, the first ghettos were in Venice and, and Florence. So, so I'm talking very positively of Poland, and Jews flourished in Poland, uh, the population grew, uh, they even had a certain autonomy. It's called the Council of Four Lands, Vada Arba Arzot, where Jews led their own lives, more or less peacefully. Uh, and then Poland began to turn anti-Semitic as nationalism began to grow. And anti-Semitism grew by leaps and bounds, by leaps and bounds. Uh, and uh, uh, and Poland became so anti-Semitic that most Jews began to think of leaving Poland, not coming to Poland. And then the Germans came in and they finished the job uh, for the Poles. I mean, the Poles could never bring themselves uh, to carry out a Holocaust. Uh, they really wanted Jews to get out. They wanted Jews to leave, but they they did not think in terms of, uh, of genocide like the Germans. But... Uh, Look at Poland today. It's it's much poorer uh, than it was when there were so many Jews and Jews participated. There were a Jewish assimilationists who uh, participated in various ways and so on. So Poland today is awakening to the fact that it would have been better if more Jews had had survived in Poland. There were many voices in Poland that say, "Oh, we miss the Jews" and so on. I'm in touch with some of these people. I say, in other words, that anti-Semitism hurts the country itself. Uh, Jews are a positive factor. Uh, if Jews stay in a country, they help the country in many ways. Look at look what American Jews have did for the for the United States. Uh, the uh, the movie industry and entertainment industry, cultural literature. Uh, how many Jews uh, uh, were recipients of the Nobel Prize in various uh, fields of science? Uh, Albert Einstein. Uh, uh, Oppenheimer, who created the, the nuclear weapon. These are all Jewish minds. Uh, Jews contribute. So uh, anti-Semitism, if you promote anti-Semitism, anti anti you are hurting yourself. You're hurting your own country. Uh, and so, therefore, that's my message, that uh, uh, you're hurting the Jews, but Jews, uh, we Jews will find a way to survive. We have survived. We have wandered, you know, the wandering Jews. So we have traveled <laughs> from uh, quite different places. And uh, and I say, look at that little country of Haiti. Uh, when the 32 nations of the world met in Evian in 1938 at the invitation of President Roosevelt, he called because the United States didn't want to admit too many Jews. So they called these nations and asked them whether you have room for Jews. And all of these nations found excuses not to admit Jews. One little country, Haiti, they said, oh, we are prepared to admit 100,000 Jews. And everybody looked at Haiti like they were, they went crazy. Why do you want? Because they said, we want to develop the economy in Haiti. And we were told that the Jews are good businessmen and they know how to develop them. So we want them. And uh, that shocked the other countries that found various reasons for declining to change the immigration policy. So I say Jews are an asset uh, to the country. 
And when you restrict Jewish rights and Jews have to fear for their safety, as it's happening in France and England, and it's beginning to happen in the United States, on college campuses, on the street, eventually the country will suffer. The country will diminish in whatever strength it has. So you're hurting your own country. Anti-Semitism is hurting the other country. And Jews will find a way, will find a way uh, will somehow uh, to survive. Uh, that is a, a Jewish profession of survival. We'll find a way. And if we could create a state of Israel after losing 6 million Jews to the Nazis, uh, and three years after the end of the Holocaust, we were able to defeat the five Arab armies and create a state of Israel, uh, that should lead everyone to think that maybe we have a certain tricks up of our sleeves and we'll find a way to survive. So don't go after anti-Semitism because you're hurting yourself. Mordecai, those, I think we're going to have that as your last words because we're out of time, but I think it's very important. So I will say it once more myself. Yes, anti-Semitism hurts everyone, not just the Jews. And I thank you so much for sharing your insights and your experience with us. I thank our listeners. For those of you who want to know more about Evelyn and myself and our work, you can go to Never Again Is Now podcast on YouTube, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. And please, as we end every episode, we say, speak up against anti-Semitism and all hate.